Heavenly Father, yours, Holy Spirit, inspired these words to be written. And so we pray that you would speak to us clearly this morning through all I say. Amen. Well, we're all different, aren't we? Uh, But as I was looking and praying about this passage, I wondered, how do you like following rules, regulations, and instructions? Generally, many of us find it difficult, don't we, to live within rules set by others. Young people traditionally rebel. I spent most of my working life uh, working with young people and trying to modify their behaviour at some points. Think of the 60s, think of love, rock and roll. While I was growing up, I had a father who was a a follower of Jesus, a Bible-believing man, and he set rules for the way that life was to be lived in our house. And uh, there was, on more than one occasion, as a teenager, I was told that if I didn't like the rules, I could leave and find somewhere else to live. And several times, I considered the situation, but I declined the offer. Looking back, of course, I can see that my father cared and loved his wife, his daughter, and his rebellious teenage son. I can also see there was certain freedom within those rules that were set, which is a bit like what Richard was saying a couple of weeks ago concerning the Ten Commandments, if you were aware with us. Richard said that the Ten Commandments pointed towards God, but they also gave freedom for the people to live as well. Well, today, in our reading that we've had read, uh, we see some of the outworkings of these principles, both in civil and ceremonial law. But what is it that we actually see in this Exodus story? What is it that we are seeing about the God of the Exodus, the God of the Israelites? Well, surely we're seeing, aren't we, a God who acts. We're seeing a God who acts. A God who calls a leader, Moses. He provides ways of persuading Pharaoh to let the people go from slavery. He calls Moses. He leads them out through Egypt, through the Red Sea, Along the way, we read of many miraculous ways that God intervenes and protects his people. And so, through Exodus, we see a God who speaks and calls. And so he calls Moses to go up to that mountain top and to listen, to hear what he wants for his people. So how then do the people react to this? Well, look what he promises to them. In, uh, we read in Exodus chapter 19, verse 4 and 5, you, your see, you yourselves have seen what I said to Egypt and how I carried you 
like on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He is calling them to be a holy nation. But note, it's not that Moses is calling the people, or in fact, it's not even the people themselves that are instigating the relationship. No, it's God that's instigating the relationship. It's God that's speaking, and it's God that's giving instructions. And so what is he saying to the people? He's saying, if you obey me fully, you keep my covenant, my agreement, you will be my treasured possession, my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's the promise that God makes to Moses and the people. They are, what he's saying here is they are of value to God. This will give them a real sense of who they are, a sense of worth. They are to be a holy people. And he gives Moses the instructions of what they are to do. But what does this require of Moses and the people? Well, it requires obedience, doesn't it? If Moses hadn't gone up to the mountain, they would never have heard this. It calls for obedience. Obedience to God is a theme that runs throughout the book of Exodus. Because it's not just about belief. It's not what the people believe about their God compared to other gods found in the surrounding peoples. No, it's all about practical living that will display what their faith actually means. If they're to be a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, then they are to be different from the surrounding people of the time. The creation of a holy nation required the establishment of justice and righteousness amongst human society. And there would be a need for right and wrong behaviour to be clearly defined. And this is what's set out in the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. And the instructions given in this morning's readings are an outworking of these. But it raises questions, of course, doesn't it, in our mind. How can they do it? And how should they respond to this situation? Well, we read in chapter 19, verse 8, their response. The people all responded together. We will do everything The Lord has said, they declare. But how are they to do it? Well, we're given a clue in Deuteronomy's account of the same event. If you look in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 1, Moses, it says, is to tell the people to hear God's words, to learn them, to keep them, and to do what they say. And so we see... Deuteronomy 5, verse 1. Hear, Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and to be sure to follow them. So they are to hear them, 
They are to learn them, and they are to do them. And surely, this is a great example for us if we're followers of Jesus, if we're Christians today, to hear God's words as given in the Bible, to learn them. How many have you learnt this week? And then to do what they are, what they are saying. They are called, the children of Israel were called to be holy, not only in faith, but in actions too. And so are we, but more of this later. Because the practical outworkings of this is, are we hearing, are we learning, and are we doing God's actions? Richard, a couple of weeks ago, stated that the commandments were spoken to all the people, including those that came before. They were moral laws, so enduring, rather than ceremonial or civil laws. And these sections of Exodus that we read of this morning show us that God's words are concerned with all aspects of human life. They require actions. They require obedience and devotion from God's people. They show us the fundamental moral values that were to undermine Israelite society. The general principles in chapters 21 and 23 have been applied to different situations. And so we read, don't we, in this account of slavery and personal injury. Actions concerning parents and animals. And as we read through them, you will notice they are diverse and comprehensive. They include household life. Look at verses 1 to 11 of chapter 21. Capital offences in society, verses 12 to 17. Capital punishment is to be permissive rather than mandatory, which is often the case in the surrounding societies. Protection of property. And when we get to chapter 23, we read of compassion to those who are poor and aliens in the land, those that don't belong there. Does that have a modern equivalent that we see today, society? Themes that Jesus will highlight in his ministry. God has compassion on these folk. And in verses 10 to 19, there's a unifying theme here, isn't there? That Israel will soon come to possess a land that will be fruitful and how they are to work that land, caring for the workers and the animals found within their society. In fact, in this section of chapter 23, we read of how the people's obligation to God moves from moral principles, which encourage impartiality and fairness, to listing a variety of ways in which civil and ceremonial law will allow them to show their allegiance to this God. There is an expectation that God will provide the fruits of the land through the action of their work. And there was to be opportunities for celebrating this relationship between God and themselves. And so if we move forward in uh, chapter 31, we read further concerning this, the, the creation of the Sabbath. 
And we read in chapter 31, verse 12, Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, You must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for generations to come, so that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. The Lord will make them holy through the keeping of his instructions. And then we read a bit further on in our chapter 23 that this is so serious that they have to be singular. They must not even name the name of other gods. Their allegiance must be total to their God. And so what do we see in this passage? We see that these instructions show us that the God of Israel has authority over the political state. The God of Israel has the authority over the religious people and over personal activities. They demonstrate examples of behaviour rather than exhaustive laws. Their teaching, of course, is very demanding for the people and for us. And it shows us that God wants entry into all aspects of human activity. He has ideals and prescriptive ways of behaving. And the duty of his people is to live under the authority of his words and instructions. So then, what does this passage tell us then about the God of Moses and the God of the Israelites? Well, surely it tells us, doesn't it, that God wants a relationship with these people, that God is holy, that God is without sin, and therefore requires his people to be holy as well. Now, you may well say, Nigel, uh, well, this, uh, we are not Israelites. We're not Jewish people. We're not living within this covenant relationship with God. So maybe this is historically interesting for us. It's something that we need to know about. But in fact, in our daily lives, has nothing to do with us. However, I think it's slightly different. Because the old covenant that this is a part of points us towards the new covenant set up by Jesus, who died to take the price of the breaking of the covenant the sinful actions of each one of us. However, there are similarities between the two covenants, both the Old Testament covenant that we read of here and the New Testament covenant that Jesus set up. So firstly, let's have a look at some of these similarities. The first one is this. We see that God takes the initiative. God calls Moses and the people... God speaks directly to the prophets. In the New Testament covenant, God similarly takes the initiative. He sends his son Jesus as a baby to this earth, which we celebrated a few weeks ago. It was God's action. It was not man's action. And if we look at Jesus' life and teaching, we again can see a link with this message this morning. Jesus takes the initiative. He called the disciples to follow him. He appeared to Paul on the Damascus Road. Angels visit different people. The crowds are challenged by hearing Jesus' teaching. 
Paul's teaching and the disciples' teaching. This old covenant relied upon the law, and it was called the Torah. The new covenant relies upon Jesus' interpretation of the law and his death on the cross. And of course, it was Jesus' interpretation of the law that got him in trouble with the Jewish authorities. So what then was Jesus' response to this old covenant, the Torah? What was his response? Well, I'd like to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5, which you'll find on 968 of your Bibles. Again, we haven't got time to go through the entire chapter. But if you look at verses 17 and 20, you will see that Jesus supports the law and the need for righteousness. He then expands upon the law and the rest of the chapter. And in fact, through chapters 6 and 7, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' interpretation of the law was revolutionary and went beyond that of the religious leaders. But again, the teaching wasn't given by Jesus as an intellectual exercise or a knowledge-based exercise. No, Jesus made a demand that is similar to that we read of in Exodus. The people listening to him must not just hear the words, no, they must be doers of it. And so, we read in chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, Do not think, Jesus says, I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then in chapter 7, verse 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house upon the rock a wise man who puts these words into practice. And so therefore, we can see the link for us as new covenant people. We are called to be doers of Jesus' words. Believe in him and act upon his teaching. Now we read the same message again from the Apostle James. In James 1, verse 17 to 18, we read... Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. It's the same God that spoke to Moses and met with Moses as we have with Jesus. And he chooses to give us birth through the word of truth. So there we've got the James 1, verse 17 to 18, reference to that. He chooses us, but not merely, so we're not merely to listen to the word and so deceive ourselves, we're to do what it says. And James writes in verse, James writes in verse 27, religion that our God, our Father, accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, of course, we don't know how the original uh, recipients of James's 
letter reacted to his instructions, whether or not they obeyed them or not. We don't know how these Jewish Christians that he was writing to reacted to them. But we do know how the people responded to Jesus' teaching. Because we read in chapter 7 of Matthew's Gospel, verse 28, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. The authority of Jesus as a teacher adds weight to his instructions to be doers of his words and his statements concerning the law. He had come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so we read in the previous verses in this chapter in Matthew, Jesus says, they are to be salt and light. They are to be holy people. They are to be holy people. And we too are called to be holy people. But we need to be clear here what the call of holiness is all about. It's not saying that we are able to save ourselves from God's judgment by our moral actions, the way we live our lives. It's not saying that we can work our way into a relationship with God and his presence in eternity by being good. We know that, in fact, because in the Old Testament, in Exodus again, we read that God failed to keep the law. He failed to keep the law. If you remember, uh, very soon after this was given and that they had agreed to follow it, they built a golden calf of which we will hear of in a couple of weeks' time. Having promised to keep God's commands, they broke them very quickly. And this, of course, led to judgment by God. And many died from illness as a result of it. And it also led for the need for sacrifices performed by priests on behalf of the people on a regular basis to pay the price for their sinful action. And as a result of this, God promised to send a Messiah, a saviour, who would provide a way for his people to come into purity again. And of course, this Messiah is what Jesus claimed to be. And so, if we are not able to save ourselves by being good, how then can we be saved from God's judgment? Well, the Apostle Paul writes, it's by grace we are saved, not by our own actions. This grace is that Jesus died in our place. He took the punishment for our sinful actions upon the cross. But of course, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't live holy lives. But the work of changing us to become more like Jesus, to become holy, can only be possible by the submission of our wills to the Holy Spirit, who works within our minds, our wills, to help us to become more like Jesus. That uh, famous preacher and theologian of the 19th century, J.C. Ryle, in his book Holiness, says this about the work of holiness. He says this, Of course, to have holiness, we need to have faith in Jesus. 
But scripture also teaches us in following holiness, the true Christian needs personal exertion and work as well as faith. The apostle who says in one place, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, says in another place, I fight, I run, I beat my body. And in another place, let us purify ourselves. Let us make every effort. Let us throw off everything that hinders us. And so we see that true holiness doesn't consist merely in believing and and in feelings, but rather in doing and in practical exhibition of active and passive grace. The Apostle Paul writes of this in Romans chapter 8, verses 9 to 11. Look what he says on the screen. He tells us that if we have Jesus as our saviour, then his Holy Spirit dwells within us. Our bodies are dead because of sin, yet our spirits are alive because of righteousness. He who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, put to death the misdeeds of the body. You will live by the power of the Holy Spirit. So then, how then can we sum up these passages in Exodus? Well, they're practical outworkings, aren't they, of the Ten Commandments for the people of Israel. They were to be the way they were to live in community, They show us that God wants to be a part of all of life's activities. And we see that, we've seen that Jesus respects them and develops them in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthews 5 to 7. It's practically, of course, very challenging for us. Yet Jesus doesn't leave us to struggle by our own strength. Rather, he promised that the Holy Spirit will aid us as we submit to his indwelling each day. Now, if you think I'm making too much of the Holy Spirit, listen to what some of the famous preachers and teachers say concerning the Holy Spirit and his work. John Stott, that famous evangelical preacher and theologian, said this, What we need is not more learning, not more eloquence, not more persuasion, not more organization, but more power from the Holy Spirit. We need power from the Holy Spirit to live holy lives. Andrew Murray, another 19th century preacher, says this, When we pray for the Spirit's help, we will simply fall down at the Lord's feet in our weakness, not our strength, in our weakness. There we will find the victory and power that comes from his love. Are we falling down at the Lord's feet in our weakness as we pray, whether that be corporately together or individually? Charles Spurgeon, that famous preacher, said this, Without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We are ships without wind. We are useless. 
He was speaking, of course, in the time when ships were powered by the wind. And to bring it up to, a bit more up to date to the 20th century, Reinhard Bonker, that evangel- evangelist, said this, the less Holy Spirit we have, the more cakes and coffee we need to keep the church going. A wonderful quote. The less Holy Spirit we have, the more cakes and coffee we need to keep the church going. I'm sure he was not against cakes and coffee, but the point is made. So, there we have it. To live the life in holiness. Now, I've been asked this morning to ask you a question for you to discuss over coffee. This is apparently going to happen uh, as an experiment for the next few weeks. So my coffee question is this. John Stott says, what we need is not more learning, not more eloquence, not more persuasion, not more organisation, but more power from the Holy Spirit. This is the question. If you believe this, how might this affect your prayer life? If you believe this, how might this affect your prayer life? Do talk about that at coffee time. So, to conclude, let us come each day in prayer, submitting our wills to Jesus, inviting the Holy Spirit to take charge, asking to be filled, to be overflowing, that God's grace may give us the power to become a holy people, pleasing to God, living for Jesus, and not for ourselves. Amen.